Good morning. So I know I've only been up here for about five seconds, but I'm going to need your participation for a moment. I'm going to make a short statement, but before I do, I'm going to count to three, then I'm going to turn so I'm facing away from you. And when I get to three, if you're able, I would like you to cover both of your ears with your hands so that you're blocking out as much sound as you possibly can. Count to three, cover your ears, and then try to listen. No cheating. (laughs) And then when I turn back around, you can take your hands off of your ears. So once again, count to three, cover your ears, try to listen. When I turn back around, you can take your hands off your ears. One, two, three. Cats are amazing creatures that make great pets, but sometimes seem to crave violence for reasons unknown. Okay, so I need an honest volunteer to tell me what they think they heard me say. (laughs) I'm okay with the Charlie Brown teacher. So what I said was, cats are amazing creatures that make great pets, but sometimes seem to crave violence for reasons unknown, which from my personal experience is pretty accurate. (laughs) Now you might be wondering what was the purpose of any of that? Why is this guy talking about cats? (laughs) The true reasoning behind this little exercise was simply to demonstrate how ability our uh, our ability to hear can be important. There are other ways to communicate, but our ability to hear is something that we could easily take for granted. Now, I didn't give you all slips of paper with a written version of the statement that I just made concerning cats and their sometimes erratic behavior. I didn't let you see me talking because some of you might be the opposite of how I am where you're actually able to read a person's lips. You had to rely entirely on your sense of hearing, which was hindered by the instructions that I gave you. The ability to hear is an important part of our lives. It allows us to more easily communicate with those around us. We're able to take notice of things without visually seeing them, such as hearing a timer go off for the dinner that's heating up in the oven. Sounds provide warnings of danger, such as a fire alarm or a carbon monoxide detector. They allow us to experience God-given talent like the numerous concerts that we've had uh, here at Cornerstone with Art Bush and Friends and with Stephen Foster on the piano. Noises and music can create moments that we will always remember and many times can stir memories that we already have within us. I'm going to play a few quick sound clips for you this morning. All of these jingles, noises, pieces of music have a purpose. Now, after I've played the clip, if you know what it is, shout it out, but there's no need to be too loud. This is a church service, not a marketplace. (laughs) Plus, there aren't any prizes, so don't get too excited. (laughs) So we're going to start out with one of the more annoying ones. I said till after. (laughs) 
So someone already said it, but what, what does anyone know what that is? So it was a it was a dial-up modem, and that was the indication that you were about to explore at the time this new interesting thing called the internet. And the best part of using it was if someone needed to make a phone call in the house, well, guess what? Your internet time is cut off <laughs> until the free is phone again, or well, I reverse that until the phone is free again. And some of you know what I'm talking about and can feel my pain. Next one That one kind of gives itself away, but anyone? Okay. I, don't, I couldn't hear people, and yeah, talking about hearing, and I can't hear people. <laughs> the theme music of the TV show, The, the Twilight Zone, is one that's main, meant to make you feel slightly uneasy. The description of the show that comes on along with the unnerving music uh, kind of gives direction to where your viewing experience is going to be, that it could be something that's not of a normal nature. <laughs> this one's really short. Can anyone tell me what that one is? Should I play it one more time? No one? Close, but not, not quite. So that was the sound uh, during the NFL draft in which the selection is in for <laughs> a player. And this sound lets you know that the team that's on the clock has made their selection of the college player that's about to join your favorite NFL team or perhaps a team that you can't stand, like the Ravens or the Browns, or the Bengals, or the Cowboys, or the Patriots. <laughs> um, that's right, football, se football season is back, and my wife and countless other wives are thrilled. What's that one? Price is Right. Now, hearing the theme song to The Price is Right, for me anyways, meant that I was probably at home sick instead of being at school or at work. I didn't feel well or I had one of those days that most kids experience where they just don't feel like going to school. And Bob Barker and his plethora of price guessing games was one of the best parts of those days off. If you heard that theme song, you knew that you were probably going to be there all the way to the showcase showdown at the end.
I won't play that one for long. So if you couldn't tell, that one was an alarm clock. And that was pretty much just to make sure you're all still awake. Not really, but the purpose of an alarm clock is to wake you up. And often that's a sound that's met by my desires to just go back to sleep, which unfortunately as an adult isn't typically an option. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the theme song to Unsolved Mysteries. And uh, if you heard that opening theme song, you kind of had a mystery of your own on your hands. What, ho what would Robert uh, Stack be t exploring today? Would it be UFO sightings, a crime of passion, the Loch Ness Monster, the story of a person gone missing? Would there be an update on a story from a previous episode? You just never knew but you did know you'd end up watching about five episodes and lose probably half your afternoon, or maybe that was just me, I'm not sure. And then there is this one. Tell me what that one is. Yep. <laughs> the Fox, uh, the 20th century Fox fanfare music, uh, it was just a short little bit of instrumentals that was played before countless movies from the studio, but until Disney took over, that was the magical arrangement that meant you were going to have a moment of silence following by, followed by the words, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then soon that would fade out and be replaced by Star Wars in giant letters and be accompanied by John Williams' score and then the opening crawl that is so famous to those movies. And there's nothing like it, and it's just not quite the same now that that 20th Century Fox fanfare is gone from that. Now these sounds, these bits of music, they tell you something is happening or is about to happen. They provide you with a mental and emotional expectation of what is going on. They capture your attention in some fashion. When you see a movie in an actual theater instead of at home on your TV, regardless of what kind of sound system you think you have, it just isn't quite the same. And the picture size isn't the only thing that makes the experience. It's that booming, seat-shaking sound that makes the experience that much more impactful. Today I'd like to look at just a few examples throughout Scripture in which sound was either used directly by God for His purpose or some sort of sound became a precursor to something important happening in relation to God and His creation. In some cases, maybe there isn't even a sound mentioned in the actual Scripture, but the mind allows us to imagine what one would hear given the events unfolding. So in the beginning, it started 
with four words from the very mouth of God. Can you tell me what they were? Four words. Let there be light. Four single syllable words, a few seconds of speech from Almighty God, but with those four words, the world as we know it began. God's perfect vision of the earth and its inhabitants was about to become a reality. And then not long after that, that perfection was shattered. Genesis 3, uh, 1 through 8, which I apologize. I don't have any of the scriptures on the screen today. I had an interesting week that led to me not getting as much done as I would have preferred. So you'll either have to just follow along in a Bible or write stuff down because we will get a little bit rapid fire later. <coughs> Genesis 3, 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make her wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now I know for a fact that I've given several sermons here in which I've used these exact verses and a combination of other verses surrounding them. But I want to focus in on a particular point in the section of Scripture in this instance. We see the story that we all know. Adam and Eve led astray through the manipulative words of the serpent, the great deceiver doing what he does best. We witnessed the first disobedient act against God in the history of the earth's short existence. And then we were painted a stunning image of that which was lost with the fall of mankind in that moment. All because of a sound. What was it? They heard the sound of the Lord of Heavens walking through the garden. Now think for a moment on how the context of the situation changed that sound. Adam and Eve had the garden. They had all of their needs supplied by God. They wanted for nothing. There isn't really any scripture that depicts any kind of everyday interactions between man and God up to the time of the great fall. Um, it said that God and Adam, or God took Adam rather, and put him in the garden to work it and keep it, which is stated in Genesis 2.15. And in verses 18 and 19, it says that God brought all the animals to Adam that he might name them and see if there might be a helper suitable to him. But we never really see any instances describing what Adam and Eve were specifically doing in the garden. We know they weren't really working in today's sense as it wasn't until after sin entered the world that uh, God said that man would eat by the sweat of his brow till he returned from the ground from when, whence he came. But God walking through the garden wasn't seemingly pointed out as being some kind of a irregularity in itself. 
the difference was that now the sound of God walking through the garden instilled fear and shame into the man and woman. Whether it was the Lord's footsteps or perhaps the sound of Him moving through the trees and other plants, the sound of God walking through the garden that day would be the last time that God and His creation would share this world together in this way. In some other instances, a sound uh, indicated the power of God. Now this one I'm going to give you a little, or as I found out doing this, a lot more background than I intended, but it's all good scripture to go through. Now in the first uh, book of Kings, the 16th chapter, we find that Ahab begins his reign as the king over Israel. Now Ahab was, in my own words, not a good dude. There are six, there are just six verses devoted to our introduction to Ahab. And let me tell you, it paints a picture and it's not very pretty. First Kings 16, verses 29 through 34. In the 38th year of, of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it, as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. He did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who came before him. He took for his wife the pagan princess Jezebel, which she's a whole other story that we don't have time to get into today. He went and served the false god Baal and worshipped him, and then went even further and built an altar to him as well. In verse 33, it says that he made an Asherah, which by doing a little research most likely meant an Asherah pole, which is a pole or a stylized tree that stood as a sacred monument to the Canaanite uh, goddess Asherah. So again, more recognizing and worshiping of false gods. It says in verse 33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord's anger than all of the kings who came before him. And on top of that, The foundation and walls of the city of Jericho were built at the cost of his firstborn and his youngest son's lives. All around, pretty terrible person. (laughs) And because of this wickedness in Ahab and those who had followed him into his evil ways of idol worship, God brought a drought to the region. In 1 Kings 17.1 it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So that's chapter 17. We move on to verse, or to chapter 18. And 
it seems Ahab is just continued on in his ways because the drought is still going on. He continues to defy God's commands. 1 Kings 18.1 After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. Now what follows later in this chapter is one of the more well-known events from the Old Testament. Elijah tells Ahab to bring the people of Israel, the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah to Mount Carmel. Now, if Hollywood were to advertise a movie about this, they would probably try to hype it up as this intense battle. 850 prophets versus one man and his beliefs. The winner proves which God the people should follow. The loser gets the axe. The showdown of showdowns pulled from the straight, straight from the number one best-selling fiction book, the Bible. But if you're a believer and you've read the story, you know that there is no fiction here. You know that there was no script writer creating a dramatic piece. And you know that it really wasn't much of a showdown because it wasn't 850 prophets against a single man. It was 850 prophets against the one true God and his servant Elijah. And Elijah used his words to once more call out those who exchanged their belief in Yahweh for that of Baal and Asherah. I apologize because there's a lot of reading here. 1 Kings 18, 20-40 So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. 
And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And with this demonstration of his great power, the prophets of the false gods defeated, God would demonstrate his power once more through Elijah. 1 Kings 18, 41-46 And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. There are two different sounds that I find to be incredibly relaxing in life. The first is that of logs crackling on a campfire. Now that Chrissy and I have a house... And uh, we do eventually want to build an actual fire pit in our backyard. But for now, we have a temporary setup that we use on occasion. And there's something about just the sound of the burning logs or the sizzle and the smell of roasting a hot dog over an open fire or s'mores that's relaxing. Um, I also have a lot of fond memories of bonfires that were held at the end of the night at what then was Tri-State Christian Service Camp, now Cedar Creek Christian Camp. Um, And it was a... It was always a time of uh, prayer and praise, shared emotions, and shared fellowship. Whether it's a tiny campfire or a raging bonfire, the sound of the fire burning through the logs and sticks is unmistakable. <clears throat> Think of the sounds of a campfire, and then imagine the furious sounds that must have come when God proved his power there on that mountain. Look again at verse 38. When the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench, 
So a few years ago, I went on a uh, trip to the Outer Banks with my wife and with my cousin Logan and his wife Hannah and Paul and Sarah and Eliana. And one night decided I decided that I wanted to have a fire in the fire pit of the beach house that we were running. So I picked up a little bit of firewood from the closest food line store to the beach house. And later that night, I gave up trying to get the fire going after about an hour of attempting to do so. Because you see, the wood that I had purchased probably wasn't the most well-seasoned firewood out there. And rain from the previous nights had soaked what little kindling I could seem to find around the yard at the house. I tried everything I could, and it wasn't until the next night when I bought these little tumbleweeds uh, fire starters that I was able to get a nice little fire going. Now imagine the scene that we just read about back in chapter 18. They poured so much water onto the contents of this altar that the trench surrounding it was filled with water. But so powerful was the fire that God brought down upon this sacrifice that it just incinerated everything. It said that the offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, even the water in the trench was devoured by the flames. I couldn't get some slightly damp firewood and twigs to light. But God brought a fire down so great that it took everything that was there and just turned it into nothing. It would have been truly incredible to witness the visual and auditory display of God's power. Now, earlier I said there were two sounds that I found to be incredibly relaxing, and the first one was the sound of a campfire. The second one is that of a nice steady rain falling on the roof. Now, I must admit I'm not quite at the level that my wife is. A small rain shower is all right to her, but she seems to prefer a massive downpour punctuated by the boom of thunder and flashes of lightning. While I can appreciate the visual spectacle of a lightning strike, and I can deliver stereotypical lines like, man, it's really coming down out there, (laughs) I much prefer a calmer experience. The sound of rain in the summer brings the relief of not having to stand outside in 90-degree weather watering the garden. And while avoiding a task that I'd rather only have to experience a few times in the summer is nice, it's not the true reason that I enjoy the rain. The rain means life. It means that the things that we've planted, and more importantly, that farmers have planted, will have much more success in providing sustenance to all. Outside of the most violent storms, the sound of the rain is the sound of life, the sound of peace, the sound of God's provision. 1 Kings 18.41, I'm just going to repeat it again. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. The prophets of the false gods had been defeated. The power of God shone through the fire that was brought down that day. And once more, God's power be revealed as the drought that Elijah had predicted would come finally found its end. The sounds found in Scripture often proclaimed that something great was coming, something that was going to change the world. In Luke chapter 2, a section of Scripture that's often reserved for the Christmas season, we read about the birth of Christ, the Son of God born in a humble manger. There was nothing grand about His entrance into the world. He wasn't born to a, a king and a queen in a palace. There wasn't a royal proclamation uh, of guards surrounding His birth. 
but there were the angels. In verses uh, 8 through 12 of Luke chapter 2, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The shepherds were out in the field doing what they always did. They were keeping watch over their flocks. Now imagine just being out there in a field and then seeing a heavenly being just appear out of nowhere. And there doesn't seem to be a very definitive description of exactly what the glory of the Lord physically looks like. But considering that it instilled fear into the shepherds, seeing all this tells us that it was something to behold. It's no wonder that it says in verse 9 that they were filled with great fear. But the words of the angel offered comfort in this time of uncertainty. The angel told them of a wondrous thing that had happened, of a Savior that had been born in Bethlehem. And in verses 13 and 14, this incredible occurrence was adorned by even greater sights and sounds that the shepherds witnessed that night. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The words of good news and praises to God, along with the appearance of these heavenly beings, would lead us, would lead them to use their own lips to pass on what they had beheld, both in the field and later at the place where Christ lay. Luke 2, 15 and 20, through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known that the saying, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. A single moment that began with a sense of fear and dread was replaced with news so grand that it couldn't be contained by those that heard it. The amazing work of our Heavenly Father tends to do that to people as it should with us. Now, I don't claim to be a Bible scholar by any means. I've never been to a Bible college or studied the original Greek text of the Scriptures. And I've been reading the Bible, and I've participated in Sunday services, Sunday school classes, lessons in camp, conventions, and other activities since I was a young child. Now, as I was researching for this message, looking at various stories from Scripture to use today, I realized something that I never really noticed before, and that is the vast number of times that trumpets are mentioned in the Bible. I mean, I always knew it was a lot, but it, the, the word trumpet or trumpets appears well over a hundred times throughout Scripture for, for different reasons. And in a lot of cases, the trumpets sounding come just prior to a major event in which God is working in one fashion or another. I'm going to go through these in fairly quick succession, so I'll simply have, 
well, I won't have the verse of chapter on the screen. I wrote that before I realized I wasn't going to have time for that. <laughs> um, before Moses received the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19, 16 through 20, on the morning of the third day, there were thunder, thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in, a sm in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Another well-known story during, during the taking of the city of Jericho by Joshua and the Israelites. Joshua 6, 12 through 17, and then verse 20. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. <coughs> Excuse me. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time... When the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And then in verse 20, so the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And then there was the instance where Gideon and just 300 men defeated the Midianites. So Gideon and the, this is Judges 7, 19 through 23. So Gideon and the 100 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shita toward Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mahola by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. And then in Matthew, we read about the coming of the Son of Man. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, 
and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. It's from Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. And this leads me to what I really want to convey through this message. Now, originally, the worship team was supposed to lead uh, the song, Glorious Day, Living He Loved Me by Casting Crowns, as the song played prior to the communion meditation. But as I was preparing for my sermon, I was doing what I usually do to find inspiration for a message by listening to music. And I've heard the song a thousand times, but for some reason, uh, that night, the bridge of the song really stuck out in my head. It says, One day the trumpet will sound for His coming. One day the skies with His glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one bringing. My Savior Jesus is mine. There are countless sounds that we encounter through our lives, and many of them will be nearly inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. But the final trumpet sounding is the thing that's going to matter most, because once again, it's a sound that has a deep significance. It will signify that the time is near in which our eternal home will be decided. 1 Corinthians 15.52 In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. In the book of Revelation, there are seven angels that blow seven trumpets, and the blowing of the first six trumpets brings a whole host of terrible things upon the earth. But the seventh trumpet, the final trumpet, offers hope for those who are in Christ and the promise of judgment on all who have resided here. Revelation 11, 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their face and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now these verses tell us plainly that God's wrath is going to come and that it's going to be time for judgment. And I don't say this is some sort of a scare tactic, but I would be downright incorrect to just merely state that heaven is the only possible outcome of when Christ returns. Revelation twenty eleven through 15 says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, 
according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The scripture clearly states that we're to be judged by what's written in this book of life. If our name is found in the book of life, we have a life eternal with our Heavenly Father to look forward to. But there's nothing to indicate in the Scripture that if you're simply a good person, you're going to find yourself in heaven. While there are numerous verses that speak as to how we should live or what we must do to be saved, to find our names written in that book, there are few that are more succinct than the words spoken to the distressed people on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.38 and 39, And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. One day, the last trumpet will sound, and we will find ourselves before the throne of an almighty God. And if it were only our goodness or our works here on earth, we would never find any hope of salvation. But it is by the blood of Jesus Christ who died and rose again that there is hope. It is by his sacrifice on the cross that we have a path to salvation if we only choose to take it. Now the song we're about to sing, which the rest of the worship team can come back up here at this time, isn't inherently a song of invitation. It isn't a song that expressly states that you need to accept Christ in order to be saved. But it very eloquently shows that Christ didn't die and rise again without reason. If you've already been baptized and made that decision, this song is one of exaltation to the one who loved you enough to die on the cross. And you can rest assured that when the trumpet sounds, we will bear witness to the full glory of a risen Christ. And if you've never made that decision, I urge you to consider this, that Jesus Christ loved you before you even came into being, loved you enough to give his life that you too could experience the glory of a life eternal with him. My question to you this morning as we uh, prepare to sing is when the trumpet sounds, will you be ready?